Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We begin a brand new series that everybody say down to earth. It is awesome in the month of December as we get ready for just not just the beautiful celebration of the Christ child, but to know that as Jesus came first time and there was no room for him at the end, the next time he comes, there will be no room for him in the sky. That he would literally that literally split the eastern sky. And, and, uh, and as we think about the first Advent, this is the first Sunday of Advent, as we long and have expectation for the entrance of Christ, we now stand between two Advents. One Advent has happened. Jesus has already come. He's accomplished salvation. He died. He lived a sinless life, died, and was resurrected on the third day. And today he is seated next to the Father. But we look, the Bible says, look forward to his next coming. When indeed he would call his church, rapture his church, and then come and set up his earthly kingdom. And so we're so glad that you're with us this morning and really, really excited about what God's going to do all month long here in December. Well, we have officially entered the Christmas season. I have found, I don't know about you, but I have found that it's, it's really kind of controversial of when it's actually okay to say that it's Christmas season in our culture. Have you come across this? Like some of you out there today, you feel like you declared it right after Thanksgiving, right? It's like right after Thanksgiving, it is Christmas season. Others of you say, nope, not a day before December 1st. I'm not going to put up the tree until December 1. Some of you are like immediately after Labor Day. Once Labor Day hits, man, it is Christmas season, right? Or after Christmas vacation. I don't know what it is for you. But I think regardless of where you stand on the spectrum, we can all say it's safe to say now it is the Christmas season. It is indeed holiday season. And with the Christmas season comes this Christmas message series that we begin today. And so I want to start today with a little bit of a Christmas survey if I can. First of all, how many of you are done already with Christmas shopping? Like all together done. You're done already. All right. Raise your hand. That means either you never bought anything. Right? You're gracing people with your presence. Now, how many of you, you hate the people with your hands raised? With their hands raised. Just show that. Okay, good. Awesome. Excellent. How many of you have ever re-gifted a gift at Christmas? So you've re-gifted it. Oh, look at that. Okay. How many of you have ever re-gifted a gift in the same season at Christmas? Like you got it early December. You gave it before the end. Okay, cool. Awesome. 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 Very good. I had a friend, pastor friend who did this with a book, and he got a call from a person that he gave it to, and he said, hey, man, this book was personalized to you. You know, like it had your name in the front. I won't tell you the initials of who it was, but his name was Chad Craig, but uh, I'm just kidding. So be suspect from, from gifts from Chad Craig at Christmas. How many of you are nervous, to be honest, about seeing family over the holidays? A little nervous about it, okay? A little bit of butterflies about it. How many of you get reminded every Christmas that your family could be a really good candidate for the Jerry Springer show? Anybody? You get reminded? Awesome. That's good, too. You know, here's a thought. Maybe your family gets nervous about seeing you, too. You know, what, what if they're nervous today about seeing you? could be the, the case. How many of you will spend more money online this year than you will in physical stores? So you're going to spend more online. All right. It's about half of you. Very cool. How many of you started shopping on Black Friday for Christmas and you ended up buying a bunch of stuff for yourself as well? How many of you did that? 
Guilty, guilty. How many of you bought more stuff for yourself on Black Friday than you did for other people? It's just, yeah, no shame in the game. Very good, awesome, very good. How many have a gift this Christmas that you're really, really excited to give to somebody else? Anybody? Very good, very good. Well, Christmas... Christmas time is a time we think about gifts, right? It's a time where we think about gifts. And in this series, we are going to talk about the ultimate gift of humanity. That is God the Father giving his son, Jesus Christ. My wife read from one of the most famous prophecies in the entire Bible, specifically made of the Messiah Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. And it was made seven centuries before Jesus. And, And I read that passage so many times. I've preached from it so many different times in my own life. And this prophecy, something that really struck me this last week in preparation, was talking about the four names of God and how God himself, Jesus himself, would be the Prince of Peace. Everybody say Prince of Peace. Started thinking about the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. You know, in the middle of Christmas season, we normally call it the season of hustle and bustle. Today, I've chosen to title this message, The Season of Rest. The Season of Rest. I had prepared a message this week, and I was working towards delivering that message, and that message was going to be the gospel or the birth of Christ according to the wise men, according to the magi, the astrologers. And then I felt the Lord just check my heart and redirect my heart in talking about a subject that I really haven't addressed in the first three years, at least pastoring this church uh, at Dwelling Place in in very clear, explicit terms. And it's something I just felt the Lord had impressed upon my heart to share with you that this actually should be a season of greater rest and a greater introspection than running to and fro throughout what we call the hustle and bustle of the holidays. I know that a lot for a lot of you between work and family and kids and Christmas and managing extended family, you're just tired. You're just tired. If you were honest this morning, you're just worn out. I have a friend with young kids, and he tells me that each night he has a little ritual where he stops his car in a parking lot about five minutes from his house, and he gets himself mentally psyched up to arrive home. He prays. He does a few Hail Marys, and he drinks a Red Bull because he knows the most intense part of his work day is just about to start when he gets home with the kids and wives. So to all you parents out there, I salute you, but I know you're tired. You're worn out. You're exhausted. Complicating this is the fact that we have a culture that chronically overworks, even going so far as to teach overwork as a value. We use it as a badge of spirituality. Every study out there, of course, we know this shows us that overwork is bad for us. We know it's bad for our families. We know a lot of parents try to justify their overwork by saying, well, I'm doing this for my family or I'm providing for my kids. But like Nicolas Cage in one of his great Christmas movies called The Family Man, he says you look up one day and you realize you don't have much of a family to even provide for. You have no family around you. Overwork we know is bad for our health. Healthcare professionals say that overwork is more often a factor in the most common medical ailments in our society. Overwork includes heart disease, lung ailments, cancer, accidental injury, cirrhosis of the liver, just to name a few. A recent CNN study, I read it this week on my computer, said that those who work 11-hour days, get this, catch this, if you work 11-hour days, you are 250% more likely to become depressed. 250% more likely than those who limit their work to eight-hour days. He said, Craig, why? Because the reason is, is that your body, when you're stressed, your body produces and releases a certain amount of chemicals and hormones to deal with the stress you're experiencing. 
And that's fine in normal rhythms. Your body can get rid of those toxins and poisons, but when you work too much, it literally poisons your body, throwing off of your levels in your brain and leads you to more anxiety and more depression. But see, there's a reason many of us are driven to overwork. We have reasons why we're overworked. The, the most obvious is, is that work is how we provide for ourselves. We're under the assumption that the privileges we joy and joy and love, we believe are in direct proportion to how hard we work. We think we get privileges if we work hardy and harder. But work is sometimes also how we establish our identity. This is particularly true of a capitalistic world, a Western world like America. We think the nature of our work determines our personal worth. We think what we do with our hands determines really how worthy we are. In fact, it's the second question we ask people when we meet them. We say, what is your name? And then we say, what do you, what do you do? We had three major ages in modern society. We've had the agricultural age, we've had the industrial age, and we've had the information age. If you're not familiar with this, in the agricultural age, if you met somebody, you said, hey, nice to meet you. I'm of the Mossgrove family. My identity was included or wrapped around who I was as a human being and whom I belonged to. Well, with the invention of steam electricity and the Industrial Revolution and the printing press and Gutenberg Press, we changed from being human beings to becoming human doings because no longer you're asked, hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm of the Moscow family. It's, hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm a pastor. Hey, it's nice to meet you. I work in a factory. Hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm a businessman. So we are human beings, but in the industrial age, we became human doings. Well, now we have moved into the information age where distractions and seduce us because we have at our, our fingertips opportunities uh, that abound. And so now we've got a whole generation that's in identity crisis. We have no idea who we really are, who we belong to, where our worth comes from. And because people often judge us based on the kind of work we do, we sometimes try to exaggerate our work. We exaggerate it. Have you noticed in our society how normal job titles have given way to more impressive sounding ones? Like, I'm not kidding you. Like, I saw a Pizza Hut advertisement that was looking to hire a shift manager that said trying to fill a position for dean of pizza. I'm like, that is awesome. I want to be a dean of pizza, right? But it's a shift manager. Another restaurant train is, is taking resumes for a beverage dissemination officer, also known as a bartender, Okay? Ways to make it sound better. Or do you ever see one of those companies that everybody identifies as a VP? Like how can you have seven VPs but only eight employees in your company? Right? But everybody wants inflation. We want to make ourselves feel important. I read of a Wall Street Journal article that said most of us inflate the number of hours we work because it makes us feel important to be in such demand. It makes us feel inflated, that people need us, the need to be needed. Sometimes we're driven to overwork because we're trying to please other people. You fellow type A'ers, that's those firstborns in the room. That's us. That's me. You don't want to let people down. You've got to live up to people's expectations. You want to exceed people's expectations. So you have to answer that email. You have to return that phone call. You have to respond to that text message. You are attached to your phone like it's an IV. You've checked it six times since I started preaching today. I'm looking at that glow on your face, and I'm like, is that the Holy Spirit? Is that the Shekinah? Nope, it's just your iPhone. It's just your iPhone lighting up your face. Bottom line is that for all of those reasons, we are a tired people. We're exhausted. So what I wanted to do to kick off this hustle and bustle season is to talk about the biblical concept of rest talk about the biblical concept of 
rest. The greatest gift that Jesus gives us, he is the prince of peace. There's a little phrase in Hebrews, if you're following with me this morning, that has always been incredibly attractive to me. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a rest for the people of God. It's similar to Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me all who are laboring and are heavy laden. And I, Jesus said, will give you rest. Today I want to explore these two passages because most of us, let's be honest, we have no idea what Jesus is talking about. We have no idea. When it comes to rest, we have no idea what the Bible is actually prescribing. If anything, if we're honest, Christmas and Christianity just feels like more stuff to do, more things to take on. But according to Jesus, the core of the Christian experience is not work. The core of Christianity is rest. The core of Christian living is not work. The core of Christian living is rest. See, for most of us, we jump into the busy part of Christianity. We're good with that, serving our neighbor, being active in the church, getting busy with spiritual disciplines. But we skip the rest part, which is actually crucial in being able to accomplish the other parts. See, listen, until you learn to rest correctly in Christ, all of your work for Christ is going to be off. Until you learn to rest correctly in Christ, all of your work for Christ is going to be off. In fact, I want to give you our big idea. Can I give you our thesis for today? I want to give you the big idea. I want to spend the next 35 minutes talking about this one idea, and it's this. Those most mature in Jesus are not those working hardest for him, but those resting best in him. The most mature in Jesus are not those working hardest for him, but those resting best in him. But that's not how we evaluate Christians in our world. We evaluate Christians about how busy they are, how much they're always at the church. Are they there every time the doors are open? Have they memorized 19 chapters last month? Are they going on busy trips and mission trips? In fact, we evaluate Christianity by who is busy for Jesus. Who's busy for Jesus? Now, I'm not saying we're going to sway to one side without being faithful to balance the other side, but the writer of Hebrews very clearly ties this Old Testament concept of Sabbath to the issue of rest. So what I need to do this morning is I need to take a couple minutes to unpack this idea of Sabbath, okay? I need, to, I need to unpack this for us. Moses explains the purpose of the Sabbath in two primary places. Let's look at them together. The first place that Moses explains the Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, he gives us the Ten Commandments, and this is what Moses says, verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day, and it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no work, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is even within your gates. Notice verse 11. He says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Notice this. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He made it holy. What is he saying? God created the world in six days and he rested on the Sabbath. So we should also. Now let me tell you why we are to rest on the Sabbath. Three major reasons that God instituted the Sabbath for the nation of Israel. Number one, to remind us that God is the point of our lives. 
The Sabbath is to remind us that God is the point of our lives. We are to take a day to recognize that God didn't create us to accomplish tasks. God created us to be in love with Him. God created us to walk with Him. God created us to be in fellowship with Him. God created us to be in friendship with Him. God created us to be in relationship with humanity. And sometimes the tyranny of life, especially at the holidays, can cause us to disconnect from the very purpose for which we are created. Created, which, by the way, is the quickest way to live miserably. The most miserable people on the planet are those who are disconnected from their heavenly purpose. And the heavenly purpose of your life is not to do things. It's to be with God. It's to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. The heavenly purpose of your life is to be in fellowship with Almighty God, not to do things for God. In fact, the things that God wants you to do for Him are only things that He can do through you. As you stay submitted, as you stay in a position of rest before God, God accomplishes more than you could ever imagine. Studies show us and tell us that we can endure a lot of strain, even pain in our lives, when we know the purpose behind the strain, when we know the purpose behind the pain. So he says, take one day off a week to remind yourself of your purpose. Every week, I want you to stop in your tracks and remind yourself of your purpose. Your purpose is to be in relationship with me. See, we weren't created for a job. We were created for God. We were created for him in relationship with him. And on that day, the Sabbath, we are just supposed to enjoy him and enjoy creation just to be alive. One day to be rather than to do. One day to be. One day to just be a human being number two reason why God instituted the Sabbath to remind us that God is the provider of our lives. So God's not only the point of our lives, he's the provider of our lives. In many ways, taking this day off, you got to understand for ancient Israel, was very inconvenient, especially in ancient Israel, because survival was a day-to-day affair. It was a season-seasoned affair. You understand that the nation of Israel, crops had to be harvested daily. The, the crop could ruin in one day. Did they have water on tap? No. Water had to be drawn daily. To cut your productivity by one-seventh could make the difference in life and death for your family. No other society in all of ancient Israel did this, but God commanded his people to do it because he wanted to remind them at the end of the day, it was his responsibility to provide for them. It was not their responsibility to provide for themselves. It was God's responsibility to provide for them. So what did God do? He is a genius. He had them cut their productivity by one-seventh to give him space to work. And here was his promise. It's what we call the Sabbath principle. If they would take one day off in obedience to him, he would multiply their effectiveness on the other six days so that they would accomplish more in those six days than if they had worked all seven days. He would make sure all their needs were met. He would make sure all the ends would meet. You see, God, listen, has set up the world so that we provide ourselves most, or provide for ourselves mostly by natural means, right? You get this. Six days you shall labor, the seventh day you shall rest. Most of the provision we experience in life comes from the work that we do. You get that. Money typically doesn't just show up, magically appear. Oh, look, another direct deposit at SunTrust from God. If that happens, that's called a bank error, and you should tell them about it. God does not use direct deposit. No, how does God provide for us? Typically, he provides for us through natural means. We work, we are paid. 
But because of that, what happens is we then begin to very easily assume that we are the ones who bear the responsibility of taking care of ourselves, i.e., we are the ones who are to make the ends meet. But that's not true. God says, I bear that responsibility. I am the source of your life. So we take a week, our day off each week to declare that. God is the source. He's the Elyon God. And on that day, we say, God, I'm not taking off because I got everything done. God, I'm not taking off because I got nothing else to do. God, I'm not taking off because everything off this last week was checked off. He says, you say to God, I'm doing less than what I'm able to do because you commanded me to do so, God. And so I'm depending on you to make up what I'm missing here. I'm depending on you, Lord. You make up what I'm missing. You see, Sabbath was a declaration of trust. Sabbath was a tangible declaration of trust in Almighty God. You don't do it because everything's done, but because God has promised that if we do it, he'll make up for the rest. Now, really quick, let's talk about the second place that God instituted the Sabbath. It's discussed in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means literally second law. It's Moses giving the law again. He gave it first of all with the tablets and Exodus. And he comes back in Deuteronomy and he gives it again and then he gives explanation to it. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is so so brilliant. He gives explanation to it. And so Moses adds one other purpose for the Sabbath. It's number one, to make sure we know God is the point of our lives. Number two, to make sure that we know God is the priority and God is the provider of our lives. And number three, he goes in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. He said, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Verse 5, you shall remember, or 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here, the Sabbath was to give them space to reflect on their salvation. The Sabbath was instituted by God for them to reflect on their salvation. This is my favorite purpose for the Sabbath, by the way. Not that I don't like point and provider, but I like this one the most. Number three, to remind them that God was the Savior of their lives. We have the Sabbath to remind ourselves that God is the Savior of our lives. To reflect on their fact and the fact in the nation of Israel that their greatest need, which was deliverance from sin, which was deliverance from the nation of, of Egypt, God had accomplished all by himself. Look at verse 15 with me again. That one need called deliverance, Israel had not contributed one iota. They didn't contribute one iota to their deliverance. Look at verse 15. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. What part had they played in the Exodus? Did they have any part in pulling off the ten plagues? God wasn't like Moses. Okay, tonight we're going to turn the Nile into blood. So get a get hundred bags of powdered blood. Get some red face paint. Give it to all the children of Israel. Tonight we're going to get out in the water. And we're going to make the water red. Did God say to Moses, hey Moses, go collect all the frogs and release them in Pharaoh's court? Oh, and by the way, the third plague is the night of cow tipping. Everybody get ready for cow tipping. No, God did it all by himself. All by himself. Hey, did the Israelites help God in escaping through the Red Sea? Did Moses say, hey, everybody get your sword. Let's fight down the Egyptians that are pursuing us. All right, divide the nation into two, two parts, right? All of you, you blow with your mouth. Get all the oxygen, carbon dioxide you can. You blow the water that way. All of you, the rest of the nation, you get all the carbon dioxide and blow that way. No, they did not contribute one iota to their salvation. Not at all. So Moses said, you are to stop for a day and reflect on the fact that you have no parts in your saving. You have no part in it. Your only part is to consent to what God wants to do. 
Your only part is to say, I receive what God has done for me. So Moses says, listen, if God took care of your greatest need, which is deliverance from sin all by himself, don't you think you can trust him to take care of your day-to-day needs now? If God took care of your salvation issue by himself, can't he take care of your day-to-day issues by himself? Now notice, look out in verse 15, Moses tells them that on the Sabbath they were to reflect on their new relationship with God. You were a slave, now you are a son. You were under in Egypt, under the cruel reign of Pharaoh. Now you're under the tender care of your father. You couldn't trust your father in Egypt. You couldn't trust your president in Egypt, but now you can trust your heavenly father. He's saying on the Sabbath, stop thinking like slaves and start thinking like sons. Think like sons. So there were three things they were to reflect on during the Sabbath. God was the point, God was the provider, and God was the Savior. Now back to Hebrews. Have you caught up? I just caught us up to this passage. That's all I did. Hebrews chapter 4, according to the writer of Hebrews, all of this goes back to Hebrews 4 and 8. And look what he says. He said, for if Joshua, who is Joshua? That's Moses' successor. This is his apprentice. He said, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Well, interesting passage. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his own works. What's he saying? He's saying the Sabbath that Moses and Joshua instituted did not provide the ultimate rest. It pointed forward to Jesus who would himself be our ultimate rest. Jesus would ultimately be the Sabbath. Now, let me give you three ways this morning that Christ has become our rest. That this Christmas we can see it not as the season of hustle and bustle, but the season of rest. Listen to me, church. These three things, if you can say them from your heart this morning... You have entered in to his rest. But you can't just say him from your mind. You have to be able to say him from your heart. If you can say, number one, Christ, my righteousness. Christ, my righteousness. Can you say it from your heart? The ultimate way that Christ is our Sabbath is that he saved us. And just like with Israel, God accomplished that all by himself. He didn't need our help in that The old song we sang, he took my sin and my sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. We didn't lift a finger to contribute to our salvation. We didn't lift a finger to contribute to our deliverance. Now listen to me, church. There are a lot of things we cooperate with with God on. There's a lot of things in the Christian kingdom that we cooperate with God on. But let me tell you something. Our salvation is not one of those. Our salvation is not one of those. Jesus did not give us an instruction manual with an explanation of how to save ourselves. He did not give us an instruction manual of how to deliver ourselves. He did the work and he told us only to believe and receive the work. I've often compared it to waking up in an ambulance. You know, your Christian conversion, your born-again experience is like waking up in an ambulance. You wake up in an ambulance and you don't know how you got there. You have no idea how you got there. And the doc who is attending over you said, hey, sir, just lay really still. You were in an accident. You were in a horrible, horrible accident. And you're about to die. We showed up on the scene. You were just about to lose your blood and die. But we saved you. And we put you in this. We put you in this ambulance. And we're taking you to the hospital. And we're going to save you there. And we're going to continue the process of saving you. We're going to rescue your life. Let me tell you what the doctor is not going to do right there in the ambulance. He's not going to look down at you and ask you to get up and help him. He's not going to ask you to stand up now that you've known the ambulance for a few years. Now that you've known the church for a few years. Get up and try to help him out on the saving part. He's not going to ask you to stand up and put an eye 
V in your arm. No, he's going to say your only role is to consent. Sign the dotted line. And this me, the doc, and the rest of my team, we're going to save you. All I need you to do is lay steel on the bed, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to rescue you. Let me tell you something. When you get born again, you wake up to the fact that Jesus suffered and died for you. He died for you alone on a cross, and on the third day, he resurrected, and God put up a sign over the tomb that said, no help wanted and no help needed. All I need from you is a consensual agreement that says, I want you to accept what I've done for you. That is the saving grace. And he says, you are to take the Sabbath to recognize and to remember that I am the God who has saved you. I'm saved you. At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Not, I got it started, now you do the rest. Not, I began the work, you finish out the work. No. I love how the song Tony just sang expresses it. You are my author, my maker, my ransom, my savior, my refuge, my hiding place, my helper, my healer, my blessed redeemer, my answer, my saving grace. You're my hope in the shadows, my strength in the battle, my anchor for all my days. And you stand by my side because you stood in my place. Jesus, no other name. Only Jesus, no other name. And you did all these things for me, Jesus. You accomplished my salvation in my place. And all I do is receive it as a gift. You died instead of me. You died in place of me. Look what he said in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his own works. Now that doesn't mean that we cease to do good works. Of course not. We just cease to do good works as a way of obtaining salvation. And that gives us a rest in them. When we do our good works, we're resting in them because they're no longer done with the pressure of thinking that we have to do them to save ourselves or to obtain favor from God. No, we do our works now as a love offering to God. We do our works to God now as an offering of love and an act of offering of gratitude that says, God, thank you so much for saving my soul. We don't do works to be saved. We do works because we are Saved. Can you say, Christ, my righteousness? You've entered his rest. Number two, if you can say from your heart, Christ, my identity. Christ, my identity. Christ, my identity. Through my salvation, Christ has given me a new identity in him. I'm no longer a stranger. I'm no longer a foreigner or an orphan before God. See, people, even ministry, ministers who don't, have identity in Christ laid effectively in their life, you know what they do? They begin to be the world's worst in the Christian kingdom of self-promoters because self-promotion is the cry of an orphan spirit. Orphans promote themselves. Sons bask in their father's acceptance. And the more that we feel we have to put ourselves out there, we're just revealing to the world that we're orphans. We're thinking like orphans. We're not sure of Christ as our real identity. I'm a son or I'm a daughter of God. I'm a brother or I'm a sister or I'm a best friend with Christ. And as his child, listen to me, church, I have been given specific gifts to be used in his kingdom. I and each of you are specifically and specially designed servants to be used in God's kingdom. Listen, this is what's so amazing. Each of you, 
is a specially designed servant for use in God's kingdom. Think about it. Not only did God give you a natural gifts and abilities that he placed within your father and your mother with the natural gene pool when he created you in your mother's womb, but now he is now through the Holy Spirit giving you spiritual gifts. He has spiritually gifted you. He knows you're beginning from your end, the Alpha and Omega. He started with the end in mind and then he created you and put everything in you that would be necessary to accomplish all that he has for you. You are specially designed. Look at your neighbor real quick and just say, you are a specially designed servant. Come on, just tell them. Say, you are a specially designed servant. Look at somebody else. Come on, like you believe it. Look at the other side. Say, you are a specially designed servant. Specially designed. Now, isn't that a better status than any identity you can get from your job? Is that not a better status than anything you can get from a Fortune 500 company? Look what he said, and again, verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. No longer am I laboring to gain an identity. No, 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 no. I've been given an identity through Jesus Christ. I'm a son of the King of kings, and I'm a, I'm a loved and dearly beloved of God my Father. I've explained before, I'll explain again, that our souls, we have this ingrained sense of unworthiness. It's called shame. It's a result of the fall. And it was first experienced as a sense of shame over our nakedness. Before the fall, we were naked. Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. Why? Because they were felt clothed in the love of God. So they had no ability to recognize their nakedness because the love of God overcame their nakedness. But afterward, we felt naked. And so what happens is our souls feel the need to find something to clothe ourselves with. We wake up in this world with a desire to clothe our souls with something. Most of us in this room our spiritual clothes or our clothes of significance is called W-O-R-K. Most of us, the clothes we wear to take care of the shame we feel is work. It's work. It's doing all that I can to be productive with my hands, to do all that I can to prove that I am worthy in some sense. And so our work becomes one of the ways we do that. It gives us a sense of significance. One of the greatest movies that I think illustrates this, it's an old movie, but a good movie. One of the greatest movies, in my opinion. It's the epic movie come out in the 70s called Chariots of Fire. If you remember the movie Chariots of Fire, it chronicles the rise of Eric uh, Little. Some call it Lydell, Eric Little. And there was two men who grew up in Scotland, and both of them were runners. And it was the story of Eric Little on his way to fame in the 1924 Olympics. He was a passionate man of God. In fact, he was so passionate, he would later go to China and be martyred. Eric Little died as a martyr in China years later. But Eric Little, when he was preparing for the Olympics in 1924, you remember that famous line that Eric Little uttered. He said, I run to glorify God, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel God's pleasure when I run. Well, from the movie's counter hero, there's a counter hero in the movie. His name is Harold Abrahams, and running for him wasn't about pleasing God. It was about proving his purpose. It was about making him look better. So you know what he said? He said, and I quote, Ten, running for me gives me 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Running gives me 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole life. Can I just tell you something this morning? All of your work done for God will be one of two ends, either to glorify God or to justify yourself. 
to either bring honor to God or justify. And if your work is really just your 10 lonely seconds, or if your work is just your 70 hours a week to justify your whole existence, let me tell you what will be out of the equation for your life. It's rest. Rest will be gone. You will never be able to rest. You know why you won't be able to rest? Because you're always asking yourself, have I done enough? Am I significant enough? Am I accepted enough? Do people review me enough? Do I look most important enough? Am I putting out a greater facade enough? And that is so exhausting and so tiring. So tiring. Because it's about proving yourself. So the gospel says you have a new identity in Christ. You have been called a son or a daughter. And you are a chosen son or daughter. And he has a plan for you to use you in his kingdom. And that is a better identity than any company can give you. Anything else can give you. I've tried to embrace this through the years through something I call the gospel prayer. I have it in my own prayer journal. I put it different places in my personal study. It's something I meditate on continue. I put it in your card for you if you would like to use it. Very simple, but it's something I've quoted to myself for years. I'm going to give you two of the four that I have. Here's the first one. In Christ, I say there is nothing I could do that makes you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. In Christ, I can make the prayer, there is nothing I could do that makes you love me more, God, and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. I am chosen. I am appointed in Him. And here's the second one I always pray. You are all I need for everlasting joy. You are all I need, God, for everlasting joy. I don't need anything else. If I have His approval, I don't need another person's approval. With all due respect, folks, who cares what small earthlings think about me if my heavenly Father calls me His Son? I mean, be honest, folks. We've got a, a blink of an eye in existence on planet Earth, and then we're forever in eternity. Does it really matter what people think about me? Does it really matter whether they accept me as is? Lord, you're all I need for everlasting joy. For a long time, see, I, I, if I can be honest and transparent with you, I, this is why this means a lot to me, because... For a long time, I'm, an, I'm a type A. I'm a doer. I'm a productive person. I'm an initiator. I'm an activator. I'm an executor. So for me, I found my identity in how good my work was, or especially how, how good the sermon was, right? Oh, boy, if I had a bad sermon, you know, 30-minute sermon, who am I kidding myself, 50, 45, 50, 52-minute sermon? If I had a 50-minute sermon and it was not good, I woke up the next morning, and it was like my wife had to pull me up off the ground with a spatula. Right? Because I'm a pancake. Because I'm thinking, oh, dear God, my whole joy is based on whether or not someone responded instantaneously to the message that I gave. Oh, you've you never done this, right? You never got on Facebook a couple hours after the sermon just to see if anybody would say anything about the sermon? Y'all never done that? Okay, cool. That's cool. So you've never looked after you've given a gift to somebody and see if anybody thought about anything about your gift? or You've never done that. I understand. But see how good my work was, how awesome my work was. Or what about how big the church was? It's like if there's a dip in attendance, it's like depression. Oh, it's like here, I'm on top of the world, and then a dip in attendance, man, I'm depressed. It must be all about me. It must be something I did wrong. What in the world happened? And so what happens is when you get in this works mentality, you have all these irrational fears. If I told you some of the irrational fears I had in ministry, you would laugh. But they were real fears to me at the time. Like, when is the Sunday I'm going to show up and I'm come here and it's just me and my wife and she's just saying hallelujah and all of you have decided to go to another church? Like, when is that Sunday coming? Well, you just come and just, it's done. No, one's, no one else is here. They're done. Just irrational fears. And so even when I took a day off, I wasn't really at rest because my soul was still anxious. So I can be physically at rest and my soul still be restless. 
My soul can be so restless. My soul cannot find the rest that God needs. Why? And desires because my identity depended on success, a success that I had to create for myself. So even when I was on vacation, I was still wondering, have I done enough? I got to get back at it. I'm tired of doing this. See, for me, because I'm a type A, rest is the number one thing in my life that confronts the biggest idolatry in my life. Rest confronts my idolatry. Rest really goes against the grain of my idolatry. Write this down. Apart from Christ, you will work even when you are resting, but with Christ, you can rest even while you're working. See, apart from Christ, you will work even when you are resting. Your soul will work even when you're resting. Even when you're physically resting, your soul is still going to be working. But listen, with Christ, you can rest even while you're working, even while you're doing something with your hands, even while you're serving. And see, when you you don't have Christ, your soul will be at work because you've got to establish your identity. So can you say, Christ, my righteousness? Can you say, Christ, my identity? Which leads me to number three, Christ, my security. Christ, my security. Christ, my security. See, listen to me, church. When work is your identity, success will go to your head and failure will go to your heart. See, this is what happens when men lose their jobs. Men, we're grafted and ingrained within our lives to provide. We're providers. And that's why it hurts so bad when men, obviously fathers that are out of business, dads are out of business, husbands are out of business, out of work, because when work does become our identity, when we're successful, it blows us up. And when we fail and we fail, it destroys us, goes to our heart. And I'm just proposing to us today, what if we, from this moment forward, could imagine a life and a church where we measured our spirituality not by how much we do, but by how much we love It would, it would unleash a revolution in American churches. At best, it would slow us down. If we measured our spirituality by how well we love people, not what we did for even people or did for ourselves or did for what we claim is the Lord, but how we love people. Christ my righteousness. Christ my identity. Christ my security. God had said to Israel, he said, if I rescued you when you were helpless, slaves, surely I'll take care of you now that you are beloved sons. If I took care of you when you were enemies in the minds of God, surely I'll take care of you now that you're my friend. Take a day off to reflect on that. Reflect on who I am to you right now. Sunday is a day to reflect on who God is to you right now. Now in the early church, understand they shifted the Sabbath day to Sunday. They moved it from Sabbath which is Saturday, sundown, fr- uh, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday in the Jewish calendar, and they moved it to Sunday because Sunday was the day that Jesus was resurrected, and they felt that best be the best day that commemorated their salvation. So they moved it to Sunday, but guess what? Christians had to even work harder because they weren't off of work on Sunday. That was the first day of the work week. So they were not worshiping on the day that they didn't work as a culture, which is Saturday, so then they had to come and meet early before, ch- before work on Sunday and then after work on Sunday. It's called the Agape Feast, and they commemorated that as a day to say, you know what, God, we are going to celebrate your resurrection. But on that day, they were to what? They were to reflect on the exact same thing. What is it? If God, as Paul said, did not spare his own son to save me now that I'm his beloved child, will he not freely give me all things? Will he not provide all things for me? So the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath was fulfilled. Christ my righteousness, Christ my identity, and Christ my security. But just because the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ doesn't mean that we stop practicing the principle of Sabbath in our day. 
I read a, a couple of overzealous theologians this week in commentaries, and here's what they said. <clears throat> they said, now that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath, we don't practice the Sabbath anymore. I highly disagree with that. Let me tell you why I highly disagree with that, because Sabbath was ingrained in creation, not the law. So long before the law was instituted, God created Sabbath. That is to say, previous, same way with tithing. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before the law. So people say, we fulfilled the law, there's no need for a tithe. Well, tithe exists outside of the law. It wasn't instituted in the law, it came before the law. It lasted after the law. The same way with Sabbath, in the very ingrained part of creation, God established that life was to be a rhythm of work and rest. We are to work and to rest. And your day of rest is not because there's nothing else to do, but because you are trusting God to be your provider, to be your identity, and to be your security. So so what I want to do as I close this message is I want you to show you how Sabbath doesn't just show up in one day a week, but Sabbath actually shows up in multiple times per day. Can I do that? I want to show you that. I want to get very practical here because I want to help you in this Christmas season. This not season of hustle and bustle, but this season of rest. So let me just give you a couple of ways that this Sabbath principle plays out. Number one, a one day a week for rest, renewal, and relationships. That's the most clear definition of Sabbath. One day a week for rest, renewal, and relationships. This is the most obvious one. We are to have one day a week to be rather than to do. To focus on God, to focus on relationships, to focus on enjoying his creation. That's what the Sabbath is. We are to enjoy it. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday, by the way. I I suggest it's on a Sunday. But when the early church changed it from Saturday to Sunday, they were showing that it wasn't a particular day that was essential. It's not a particular day that was essential. People say, well, I can't afford to take a day off. No, I tell you, you can't afford not to take a day off. What do you mean, Craig? For most of you, I believe, honestly, if I can say this, I'm your pastor. (laughs) So you take it as a grain of salt. For most of you, I think it should be on Sunday. You say, Craig, why? At least it's one day a week where you cease from your labors and enjoy God and the gifts he's given. Let me give you a point that really is important here. On that one day a week, public worship should always be a part of it. Moms and dads, would you listen to me? There are no sports that are greater than you creating a habit daily and weekly of your children and your family attending church every single weekend. I don't know how many more times I have to say that to people. And I hurt for them. I don't hurt for them because I want them in the church. I hurt for them because I know what it's going to do to their kids. I've seen it. I've pastored their kids for 10 plus years. It's not an option. It's not an option. Public worship on the day of the Sabbath, it's not an option. Because to worship with God is central in your life. Why? Because God is the point. God is the provider, and God is the Savior. Now, I know there's so much challenges. We used to have sacred days. You couldn't do volleyball on Wednesday nights because you go to youth group. Now, that's not sacred. So they did that for about 10 years, and now Sundays are not sacred, especially on traveling teams, right? Because you're out of school, you're in school the rest of the week, so you got to do it. I'm not here to beat anybody up. Don't accept any shame that the enemy would place on you. I'm just telling you, you've got to think through these things when you're looking at the priority of 18 years of a kid in your house. Like I would tell parents all the time, like, please stop saying your kid's a part of youth group if they come like once, a, once every three months. Like, just stop saying they're a part of youth group. So that way when they do what they do, you don't say that it's the youth group that actually helped to foster that. Because they weren't. They weren't there. They weren't there. They weren't ingrained. They weren't a part of it. But see, it's not just a day to do public worship. It's a day to be with family. It's a day to be with family, to be outdoors, to do things you enjoy. That's what the Sabbath is. And when you do, you know what God says? I will multiply your effort on the other six days. 
first time I ever really experienced the power of this was probably my junior year in college. I never took a Sabbath, ever took a Sabbath. I kept the 4.0 all the way through my master. So I've never made a B up to this point. So for me, what that meant is that as longer as I went in school, I had to study harder and harder. And so for me, when I got into college, I had to study. And then I got a job. And there was one semester in particular where I was taking an ungodly amount of hours. I think it was taking 20 hours, 18 hours. And I was taking in my undergrad and I was pastoring at the time. So I was traveling back and forth from Chattanooga. I was newly married and I was pastoring. And I remember not ever taking a Sabbath. And I remember the Lord really began to convict me on this. And he said, I want you to take a Sabbath. So you know what I did? I said, on Sunday, it would no longer be the day that I study. I will not study for Lee University. And so I'd go to church. I was pastoring at the time. And then I would take time to be with friends. And I would be in relationships. It would take a time and a day to be rather than to do. My Sabbath now is normally Mondays. And Mondays are the days where God reminds me, my name's Craig, not Pastor Craig. Okay? I'm his son. I enter into the presence of the Most High, not by Pastor Craig, but Son of the Most High. And that's what I do on my Sabbath. And I remember taking that. And you know what happened? God showed me. I mean, He blew me away because He showed me in that one single year how He multiplied. And that semester, I was still as successful as I'd been. And I felt like I got myself prepared to be a better husband and move forward in what God had called me in my life. So number one, one day a week for rest and renewal. Number two, Tithing. This one might surprise you. Tithing. Tithing. What do you mean tithing? You think you always have to tie it back to tithing. Well, hear me out. Tithing is the number one application principle of the Sabbath principle. You say, Craig, how do you know? Tithing means that you give at least one-tenth of your income back to God. And you don't do it because you've got 10% extra in your budget that you can't figure out to do and what to do with it. You do it just like they took the Sabbath day off as a declaration that God is the provider of my life. God is the provider of my family. And ultimately, you trust Him to make the ends meet. I trust God to be the sole provider of my life. That's why when people say, I can't afford to tithe, I say, you can't afford not to tithe. God says, obey me by giving 10%. You think you can't afford and watch how I multiply the remaining 90%. Let me tell you something. God can do more with the 90% than you can do with the 100%. He can. Trust me in this, says the Lord. I can't explain exactly how he does it. I can give you testimonies. I can't explain, but I've done it now for 12 plus years of my life. And I just tell you that only, only that he always does. You can't outgive God. I've never found a Christian on this planet who is faithful to tithe and be a generous person that outgave God. You can't do it. God will give back into your bosom. Why? So that you can continue to be a blessing to other people. He doesn't want you to be a reservoir. He wants you to be a river. He wants you to be an outlet that continues to give. That if he can trust you with it, he will put it in your hand. But you've got to be a person who trusts God enough to say, I will tithe. First and foremost, off the top of what we receive, we tithe. We give faithfully. It's like the six days. You do less than you can, and he multiplies the rest. Tithing. Here's another one that really might surprise you. Sleep. Sleep. You want to practice the Sabbath? Sleep. Let me take you to one of my two favorite passages. I got this one tattooed on the back of my hamstring. No, I'm just kidding. That would be weird. Psalm 127, verse 1. He said, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What is the sign in this verse that you are beloved by God? Sleep. Sleep is the number one sign you're his beloved. 
You want to know that you're beloved by God? Sleep. Wow, that goes against the grain of our culture. The number one sign that I'm in his beloved that he's given me sleep. Looking at you right now, I can see several of you are feeling really beloved by God right at this moment. <laughs> but see, here's the problem with this. If you're asleep, who's got the city? If you're asleep, who's building the house? If you're asleep, who's, who's watching the city? And the psalmist sweetly smiles and says, God is. God's building your house. Oh, who's going to watch the city of my family? God is. Who's going to watch the, the city and build the city of my responsibility? God is. God intended sleep to be a daily Sabbath where you remind yourself you're not God. And the Lord spoke it to me this way this week, so I'm going to speak it to you this way. He said, I have created sleep to be in a horizontal position to make a public posture and declaration that you are not God. That's it. You're just, you're just horizontal. You're publicly declaring you are not God. You, that's why you can't sleep setting up. That's why it sucks driving 18 hours to Oklahoma and trying to sleep this week. You can't do it. No matter what you do if you're 6'2", you can't do it in a truck. You get on a plane, you, you fly to Africa, get about hour 11. You will be laying in the middle of the aisle, okay? I promise you, it don't matter if there's hair on the floor, if there's ginger ale remains, Biscoff cookies, you're going to be flat. I'm, I'm telling you, I've, I've flown overseas enough. You do whatever you can to get horizontal because you are publicly with your posture declaring, I am not God. I am not God. I am not God. I'm going to stop trying to be God. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to rest. I'm going to lay down. Can I just make you a personal confession? The more responsibility I get in life, the more trouble I have sleeping. The more I wake up worried. Now, don't send me your miracle pillow or herbal remedy or essential oil that you want me to put on my kneecaps, okay? I don't want any essential oil on my kneecaps, all right? The reason I don't sleep is because I stay worried. Because I wake up at 3.30 thinking it's my objective to figure out who's watching over my family. I think it's my responsibility to bear the weight of who's watching over the church. I think at 3.30 or 3.45, it's my responsibility to bear the weight of who's watching the city of my family, who's watching the city of this church. But here's what I've learned. God wants me to lay down each night. It's kind of like a daily Sabbath just to remind myself that I'm not God. So when I lie down before God, I say, God, I'm turning myself off because you don't turn off. You never sleep nor slumber, so I'm going to turn myself off even though there's a ton to do. I got a lot more to do, God. I could be a whole lot more productive. I got lots to worry about but you're staying on and you designed me to turn off so I can trust you to handle what I can't handle so at 3 30 when I wake up I can say God you've not appointed me to worry about the city you've appointed me to sleep at 3 30 which must mean you have the city if you've appointed me to sleep at 4 30 it must mean you have my family if you've appointed me to sleep at 5 15 it's because you have my children you have my children you're sovereign over my children God you told me to go to bed so I'll go to bed I read of a I read of an article a few weeks ago. This guy was not a Christian. He has a trouble sleeping. He's a small business owner. So I said, well, I'll read his article because it might help me. And so I started reading this article and he said he had very big, a lot of times uh, trouble sleeping. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but in today's world, you can hire what they call virtual assistants. And so like you will, at 5.30 every day, you will email all that you need to get done and they'll pick it up in China and then they'll work all night until the morning and they'll send you an update of all that they did for you. Brilliant. 
and then you start on your work day again. And he said, I started hiring this virtual assistant in India. And he said, every day at 5.30, I would get on my computer, I would send an email to my virtual assistant in India, and I would say, hey, um, here's my list of things I have for you to do today, but then this is what I want you to do. Would you take the next 15 hours, and I'm worried about these six things. Would you worry about these six things for these 15 hours? And I want you to worry about them and worry about them and think about them and spend time, mental energy on them. And then when I wake up in the morning, I want to open up my email and see that you worried about them. The next morning, he woke up his email and this lady had sent back his virtual assistant from India and said, hey, just to let you know, over the last 15 hours, I've been worrying about these six things. And he said, man, it helped me to start sleeping. Like, And some of you say, that's foolish. And I read it and I thought, that's exactly what God says. You lay down at night and God says, I'll worry about everything you're worrying about. You sleep. If you labor, you labor in vain. God says, I've got it. I'll worry about it. I'll take care of it. And this helped this man sleep. So let me give you really one more practical application point for this sermon. Some of you, this might be your favorite sermon point ever. Get more sleep. Get more sleep. Some of you men are taking notes. You've never taken notes yet in the history of this church. See, those of us, not us, those who study these things say the vast majority of Americans need to be getting more sleep. Listen, 1% to 3% of the population in America is sleeping too much. 1% to 3%. And come on, parents with teenagers, we know that 1% to 3% is teenagers. Okay, come on, can I hear a good hearty amen right there? The day's coming, babe, when it's coming for us. Those kids will just sleep all the way through the day. We'll have to be waking them up for lunchtime. It's coming soon and very soon. We're going to see our kids sleep. Can I give you the historical context for this? Up until 1879, the average American used to sleep 11 hours a night. 1879, it changed. Why? Something was invented called the light bulb. And when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, what changed? What changed was if you look at the history of mankind, we are an anomaly of sleep compared to the history of human animal. So we're under-rested, exhausted, weary. Our lack of sleep contributes to all kinds of health problems. I watched this TED Talk. You guys know I'm a wannabe neurologist. I watched this TED Talk and explained that your brain doesn't have blood vessels all in it. It only has some blood vessels. So what happens is most of your cells in your body remove waste via your blood vessels. Vessels. So if you have waste here, it goes to the blood vessels, it goes to the endocrine system, endocrinology, and then you pee it out, sweat it out, whatever. And in the brain, you don't have as much blood vessels. So what happens is there's an enzyme that the brain produces that carries away waste. But here's the kicker. The enzyme is only produced in sleep. So when you wake up with no sleep and you feel mentally foggy, you actually are foggy. You're full of waste. Your brain's full of waste. That's why you can't think clearly. It's full of waste and has no way to get the junk out of your brain because the enzyme was not produced. Number four, a daily Sabbath. A daily Sabbath. Daily times to unplug and refocus yourself. Everybody say QT. That means doing a quiet time, by the way. Listen, some of you are so looking forward to the new year. Woo, January 1's coming. But you shouldn't be so excited because for many of you, you're just going to get a new start on old habits. Here's what I'm going to do over the next few weeks. I'm going to take a five-day Bible reading program that I've done for the last few years. It's an Old Testament, New Testament reading. It's no more than 15 minutes a day. 
It's a chronological plan. It's the one I've done this year. It's the one I've done the last few years. I'm going to take a couple of these, as many of these as you want them, you get them. I'll have them out at the next steps table. I want you to prepare, but I'm not doing it. I'm not waiting till the first Sunday in January to say, oh, let's start. I want you to prepare yourself now to have a QT. You need to start this next year with a QT, a 15-minute, 20 minute a day where you have a daily Sabbath. That means you build time in the day to recenter your priority. David, he liked to do it in the morning. Jesus, the location really doesn't matter, but you need to find a location in your house, an altar. Jesus liked to use the des- deserted places. Daniel liked to use his room. David liked to use his bed. Everybody, Elijah, liked to use a different place. It doesn't matter, but you got to build an altar, and you got to get on some Bible reading plan. People say, well, I'm on a devotional plan. Well, how are you on a devotional plan if you don't have any text to read. You just pick up a different text each week. I I don't know how you do that. Some of you can do that. Awesome. But until you get something that keeps you accountable, it becomes really hard to have a QT. And so this is a year where you've got to say, you know what? 2019 can be my best year if it's my best year spiritually. So that starts with a daily uh, Sabbath. I know a pastor, a friend of mine, he said he asked his assistant to build five-minute space between each of his meetings to pray. So between counseling appointments and staff meetings, he would have five minutes to pray and to rest and think about the next person. He would literally pause his day. In Winston Churchill, in the the brunt of World War II, the brunt, the highest battles. You know what Winston Churchill did? For two hours a day, he stopped and he went down in his basement and he started painting pictures. And Winston Churchill said this, if I'm going to maintain mental acuity to make it through the battle, the best way to rest is to have your mind totally engrossed in something you don't typically do. So he would paint landscapes and trees. you got to do something daily that your mind doesn't normally do. Best advice I've ever received on this came from Rick Warren. He said you have to divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon all responsibilities annually. One time. You got to find ways to Sabbath. Or how about this one? A nap. I'm not a napper, but you know a recent study shows that 30-minute nap three times a week cuts your heart attack risk by 60% in America. 60% with three times a week a 30-minute nap. Isn't that crazy? You're like, this is the greatest sermon ever. Fifthly and finally, Yearly vacations. Yearly vacations. Oh, throughout the Bible we see Jesus commanding his people to take time off to remind them that they're the ones not doing the work. Let's look at a few of them. Mark 6, 31, he says, Then, because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. They didn't have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So many people were coming. So many people were coming, and yet... Yet, he says, you've got to go get some rest. It wasn't like there wasn't nothing to do, folks. There was a line of people that needed miracles. And Jesus said, hold on, my disciples and I, we got to go get some rest. So you can't say under the spiritual auspices of I've got to meet needs because Jesus didn't do that. So many people were coming. He went off and he said, no, we got to rest. We got to take some time off and reflect on the fact that God does the work. Let me know, give me give you my, another favorite example of mine. You know what my favorite example in scripture of rest is? Acts chapter 1. What do you mean, Craig? They've just been given the largest assignment in human history. Go make disciples, preach the gospel, all nations, make disciples of all nations. And instead of getting right to work, he, you know what he tells them to do? Do nothing for 10 days. Do nothing. Now, I know it wasn't like them going to Boca Raton, but they went into an upper room and just sat there for 10 days until they were endued with power from on high. And the Holy Spirit came. Now, listen, some of you are saying, ah, vacation, Craig. I know I lose some of you because you say, I can't afford that. Or if I, if I take a vacation, I don't get paid. I'm getting paid by the job. I get it. 
I don't want you to think Disney World here. Listen, I mean a time for you just to unplug and focus on relationships. Do a staycation. Go to local parks. Play some games with your kids. And by the way, we have employers in here. If you're an employer, can you hear me? As much as you can, extend this benefit to your employees. It's a way of honoring God, the created order that God gave. And God will certainly bless you for it. He will when you bless your your employees with time off. And your employees will probably become a lot more productive. These are all ways you put the Sabbath into practice. You stop and proclaim Christ as your rest. Come on, team. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me all who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Look at what the next text. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Everybody say, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Now, when you read that, doesn't that sound confusing? What was Jesus' burden? The cross? Does that sound light? No. He's offering weary people a yoke? Does that sound like kindness? A yoke was a saddle. Look at the yoke. was a saddle that the oxen wore to plow. That sounds like what tired workers need least. Well, God, right here in Matthew 11, he should be saying, I promise you a mattress of vacation. A sleep pillow, not a yoke. But what Jesus is offering, look, church, it's not an escape from life's pressures, but new equipment to go through life's pressures. He's not giving you an escape from the anxieties and challenges. He's giving you a new equipment to use in the challenges and pressures. Listen, church, look, look at the yoke. Two necks go in it. Two oxen go in it. When you're yoked up with someone much stronger, who bears most of the weight? The stronger one. The other one's just kind of got his feet dragging and Jesus just dragging you through life. That's really what happens. The lighter one, the younger one, the weaker one doesn't carry the brunt of the way. See, listen, God says if I just give you temporary escape, you'll just go back to being stressed. So instead, I'm going to give you new equipment to go through the pressures. I'm going to give you a new way to go through the strain of divorce. I'm going to give you a new way to go through the strain of relationships. By by the way, can I say something real quick? The kind of rest that Christ offers is only available for the fully committed. What do you mean, Craig? A yoke tied one oxen to the other, which means you couldn't go separately. If you're trying to run away from God, don't expect Him to carry the brunt of your responsibility. You can only get Him to carry your weight if you are fully committed to Him. You can't pull away from Him and expect Him to carry the weight. He only carries the weight when you go where He goes. That's good preaching right there. The only way you'll experience the rest that God desires is when you do the hardest things because it's in the hardest things is where God asks you to walk. See, so when it's when you're going where He goes that then He will bear the break, the brunt of the way, but it's only when you're fully committed. That's why the hardest way to live is to live like most religious people do. Instead of surrendering fully to Jesus, they adopt a religious checklist of they need to do these things to keep God happy and it just makes them feel more burdened. Come on, you've been there in life. It makes them feel uh, uh, busier and stronger and they're not getting the benefit of rest that comes from being fully committed to God that he's pulling most of the weight in yoke. Can I tell you how awesome it is to wake up every morning? Wake up every single morning each day knowing that I'm doing what Jesus has told me to do. And even when it's really, really hard, He's promised to make it all work. I don't have to carry the weight and responsibility of all relationships in my life. I don't have to carry the brunt of the weight of all challenges in my life. I get up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I look over at Jesus. I put the yoke on my neck. He puts the yoke on His neck. He winks at me and He says, let's get after it. You ready to get after it? And it's really not me getting after it. It's really just me dragging my legs, but He is getting after it all 
all day long. And I'm just saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let's continue to move, Lord. Let's continue to move. If you want to rest, you've got to surrender fully. You've got to surrender fully. One last thought. Whether you take these Sabbaths demonstrates whether you trust God or you just talk a big game. Whether you take a Sabbath tells me where you believe about God. I got a letter from a few years ago from a girl who explained that her faith never became real until I pressed her on tithing. Kind of a crazy story. She said, I hated tithing. I understand following Jesus, but tithing, no, I don't do that. That's real money. And she resented it first, and she wrote me this letter and said it was it was becoming the, the money and tithing became the catalyst for her to really start trusting God. And I said, that's right, because you think you can trust God, but you don't trust God if you don't obey the Sabbath principles. In the same way, whether you rest in the various Sabbaths by doing less than you can and trusting God with the outcomes that He can do shows whether or not you trust God. Do you feel the weight of your success as a parent? Do you feel the weight of your success as a student is on Him or you? Do you show that by your faithfulness with your time, your budget, what you do with your life? The season of rest. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.